Welcome, guys and gals, to the Man Talks show. I'm Connor Beaton, the host and founder of Man Talks. This podcast brings together some of the best thought leaders, teachers, and extraordinary individuals to help teach and mentor you on how to be a top performer in life, love, and business. Joining me today is Max Stossel, and uh, I actually saw Max speak. He's a he's a spoken word poet. Uh, he's a filmmaker. He's an artist. Uh, he is one of the leaders at the Center for Humane Technology, which is a movement to realign technology with humanity's best interests. I actually saw him speak and do some spoken word at a friend's book launch here in in Manhattan, and was just blown away by the content. And the ability that this guy had, and when I started to look into who he was and the type of things that he's done, I was like, "Man, I have to have this guy on the show." So, uh, so here, here's a little bit of here's a little bit about Max. So his performances have reached across four continents, from Lincoln Center in New York City or in New York to the uh, Horton Pavilion in Sydney, have been described as mind-expanding, profound, emotive, and hilarious all at once. His work has been translated into 14 languages. He's won multiple film festivals for his uh, film work. He's consistently goes viral and has influenced the way digital media organizations tell their stories. So the interesting thing and one of the reasons why, you know, I, I really uh, admire his work and, and one of the things that, you know, I really admire about him is that before entering the world of poetry, film, and, and digital activism, he was actually a media strategist with an extensive background in social media. He ran social for companies like Budweiser, uh, where he drove a 3,400% increase in active engagement uh, before joining and being trained by Gary Vaynerchuk, the legend himself and creating social strategies for companies like Dove and several other major uh, multinational brands. He's written on the subject for Quartz and Huffington Post and has really just done some some really fascinating work. He's, he's spoken at events from around the world. Uh, you know, he's, he's worked in digital media, really understands the strategy. And so this interview is, is sort of separated into a few parts. So we I dive into Max's story first because I'm really curious about the the path and the trajectory that led him from, uh, you know, being in a social media marketer to being a social media activist and and really uh, doing work with the Center for Humane Technology, which actually helps people unplug a little bit more and replug back into life. And I'm also really curious about his journey into masculinity, which is something that him and I actually connected about uh, after the event. So we talk about masculinity. Um, you know, we we talk about stepping into that space, embodiment, and we actually talk about pornography a little bit. And and Max actually shares a uh, a poem that he's never released before that he wrote specifically for this podcast, and he he actually performs it on the podcast live. It's a spoken word poem about the impact of porn, which was really really powerful. And that's towards the end of the show. So. Uh, I hope you enjoy this. Don't forget to man it forward. Share with one person if you enjoy this. I'd love to hear from you. Hit me up on Instagram, Facebook, whatever uh, whatever platform is your choice. You can email me too, Connor at mantalks.com. I'd love to hear uh, the impact of this episode on you. And uh, for all the guys that are out there listening, don't forget to get uh, head on over to Man Talks community. You can join the community there. We've got over 3,500 guys from around the world. We have all these types of conversations, challenges going on a monthly basis. Uh, and if you want to dive deeper, you want to work with me personally, uh, you can reach out to me through ConnorBeaton.com 
or check out the Alliance. We have another group of the Alliance starting shortly in the beginning of July with guys from all over the world joining. We are going to dive into defining and finding your purpose, into increasing and elevating your mindset, uh, into intimacy and, and sexuality in, in relationships. We're going to talk about relationship development and then professional development as well. So check that out. You can go to mantalks.com and check out the Alliance there. So without any further delay, thank you so much for tuning in today and please welcome Max Stossel. Thanks for having me. Listen, man, I, I'm excited about this. I saw you uh, I saw you do some spoken word at Amber Ray's book launch event. And like as soon as you were done talking, like it's just the, the minute that you were done, I was like, got to have this guy on the show. And, <laughs> and I, and I can't really describe why, you know, I think that there was sort of like this quiet, unassuming charisma about you and, and the, you know, the subject matter of your, of your poetry was really powerful uh, for the audience. And, and, uh, and so I'm, I'm excited about where this conversation is going to go today. So before we dive into the whole, the whole shenanigans of, of your life and, and poetry and art and masculinity, I would love for you to just share with us a, a story about a defining moment that's made you who you are today. Sure. Um, and so it's a very, very good, very deep question. Uh, the thing that comes to mind for me is actually my first relationship, which was a beautiful one in many ways and also a very challenging one as she was going through won't get into the details of it, but some, some very real struggles, which weren't so much about us, but she was going through some really challenging stuff in her life. And I was sort of the only one she confided in about it. And I took that on very seriously and very much as my own. And to be honest, I had something of like a, a sheltered childhood. And in many ways, I could argue, coasted through life for the first 18 years where a lot of decisions were made for me. And this was one of the first times where I was really dealing with something big and something challenging and something important. And I threw all of myself into it. And in many ways, I feel that I lost my identity in her. I became her, made her problems my own, and just wanted to do everything I could to help her through that. And that came with pros and cons. There's challenges in a relationship of taking on too much of what your partner is going through. And, and I'm you know, still learning how to, how to balance and manage that. Uh, but that was definitely a defining moment that uh, steered who I am and how I love and how I show up for people, which is something that I'm still learning to balance. But it was, but it was the the moment that comes to mind. Amazing, yeah. It's interesting because I think that we've all, most maybe not all, but most of us have had that experience where we get into a relationship and it and we just are seen in such a with with such depth. And we're able to see someone else with such depth that that we connect to them in such a deep level that that we we do start to lose our, lose ourselves and we start to lose our own sort of personal identity and the the lines between who we are and who our partner is really start to dissolve and <laughs> and we take on we take on the challenges and I think one of the one of the biggest things as as men especially is that we're oftentimes fixers and so when our partners are going through these experiences of you know, maybe having issues with health or depression or anxiety or their job or whatever the case may be, we often want to go into this modality of, of fixing. And that can often mean that we take on the struggles and the challenges that that, that person is going through. So I'm, I'm curious how that how that showed up for you. Like, how did you find you're losing yourself? And, you know, were you able to pull yourself out of that? Or did it result in, in the end of the relationship? And, and how did you sort of recover from that? 
<laughs> yeah, I would say it, uh, it wasn't exactly the impetus for the end of the relationship, but it certainly started the spiral, I would say. And I, yeah, I think what you said is spot on. And there's also an element of, you know, I see exactly like you said, I see this purity and this beauty in this person. And then I see them going through something that they don't deserve to be going through. And it's so challenging. It's so unfair. And I, yeah, you want to be, you want to be the fixer. But I, I also have found more recently too, in, uh, that it's also a way of not dealing with our own challenges. It's a way of diving into somebody else's problems, which might seem more intense than your own. And it's a way of saying, okay, like I can, in the sort of search for purpose and meaning in this world, if I can throw myself and help this person, that I see so much beauty and just really take on their things. That's enough. I'm enough. Uh, and I, I think there was a lot of that happening um, in that first relationship as well. And, you know, like, I think the challenge that I learned from that relationship as well was that I started to, you know, I would subtly resent that I had to go through all of this with her after a certain amount of time. And that starts to show up. And it was a long time ago now. So I'm actually having trouble remembering the details of exactly how I, how I came out of it. But what stuck with me was that level at which I took on her world and I made her problems my own. And it's something that I carry with me and I'm working on how to navigate in a way where I still can show up so fully for a partner and for somebody I love, but not to, but also to do so with honesty about how it's impacting me and to not do it in a way that is toxic, but to do it in a way that's beneficial. Mm, yeah. I like that. Uh, I like that a lot. And I mean, it's, it's interesting, right? Because we, we want to support those people when we're in that relationship and we want to really be compassionate and empathetic for them, especially because we care so much about them. It can be so challenging when it's a family member or, or somebody that we're in an intimate relationship with. And, and we can easily, we can easily lose our sense of boundaries. I think that's what I often see with, you know, with, with guys that I work with in these scenarios is that their boundaries have sort of been collapsed on. And it's almost like in order to be compassionate or empathetic, they feel the need to really embody everything that that other person is going through in order to fully understand it. And, you know, we can have compassion, we can have empathy, we can, we can sort of uh, allow ourselves to, to serve them without needing to take on their baggage at the same time, because then you just have two people that are suffering. <laughs> and then, and then no one's, you know, no one's holding space. And I've definitely been there. I've done that, uh, you know, in, in a past relationship as well. So I, I definitely sympathize. So I, I appreciate you sharing that, man. And I think and, there's a desire to be boundaryless also for me anyway, of like, mm -hmm. there's a desire that I can be so strong and so Superman for my woman that I can take on all of her things and be a fixer and a guider and um, someone who helps her grow, you know, just gives all these best things and can just be that everything for someone. Like I have that desire to be that, but there's reality checks in there and in the reality of that situation, how can I best actually mm -hmm. show up and actually serve and actually help both of us have the healthiest relationship we can have? Mm. Yeah, I like that because, you know, I think as men, we're often seeking freedom in its sort of fullest expression. And we, and we miss out on the, on the fact that the boundaries are still required for that freedom. Otherwise it's just, it's just chaos, right? Otherwise you just, you sort of like dissolve into this like chaos of not having any boundaries whatsoever, which isn't healthy either. So yeah, really, really great point. All right. So, so there's, there's a few things that I really wanted to dive into on, on the podcast today. Cause you know, one of the things that I, 
one of the things that I really appreciate about you is that you have this sort of non-traditional, non-conformist path to where you are today, you know, to being an artist, to, be, to being an award-winning poet and filmmaker. And you actually started off uh, in, in like digital activism and, and, and media as a media strategist. And so can you just give us some insight into, into the beginnings of Max and, and where you started off in your career? Absolutely. So yeah, so the digital activism piece actually came later where I started was uh, in social media strategy. So I kind of lucked out in college, my first job, uh, I was working for like a healthcare startup and they said, hey, you're young, go figure out social media. Um, and I said, okay. And they were a company that was having trouble making sales. And all of a sudden I was gathering a lot of leads on Facebook and Twitter. And so the CMO and CEO of this company were like, whoa, show us exactly what you're doing. What's going on here? And I got excited because I was like, oh, I can be good at something without having to go to school for it. Great. Um, and so I Ended up just sort of doing what I think a lot of us do around that age, which is just following that path. I, out of college, was doing social strategy for Budweiser. And at that time, it was very sort of, it was easy to get great results because people, Budweiser was posting their press releases on Facebook and on Twitter. And so just like little changes to doing what works on social media would yield these remarkable numerical results. But I always had this sort of concern and question of like, why and what? is the purpose of what we're doing, even if it was just like, is any of this work actually selling more beer? That's your guys' goal, right? Your Budweiser, you're trying to sell more beer. Is this doing that? Um, and I felt like everyone was just looking at a line going up at a graph and being super pumped that that line was going up on that graph. Uh, and then so I voiced that concern to someone named Gary Vaynerchuk, who is a social media guru of sorts and quite a character. Uh, and he had, was building or had just built an agency at that time. And he hired me on the spot and said, let me mentor you. And I was like, wow, that's great. I had seen some of his videos and was really impressed by him. And so I worked with him for about a year, learned really a lot from him. He's the most incredible salesman I've ever met and also has, I think, higher emotional intelligence and understands people better than literally anyone I've ever seen. And he's remarkable to watch. But I did strategy for Dove and PepsiCo and I was, but I was selling beer and soap and I found that unfulfilling. Um, and then I actually bricked my phone at, or just out of that relationship that I was describing. I bricked my phone at a concert, lost all of my friends and met this girl who introduced me to some of her friends who, um, you know, six months later invited me to Panama for New Year's. I went on a trip to Panama. I found myself surrounded by 30 of the most incredible people I'd ever met. I was like, wow, this is my tribe. I want to be in this world. They were all social entrepreneurs. And so I was like, okay, startup world. I want to be in startup world. I had a friend who was starting a social media startup, joined him for a while. We were going to be the Instagram for video. This was before Instagram had video. Um, and we did the whole startup run. We raised a bunch of money. and But ultimately, we were. I was designing notification structures to try and take people out of their world and bring them into mine. I was trying to steal people's time. And at the time, I didn't think that was a bad thing. I was like, oh, I'm not making anybody do anything they don't want to do. But I still socially found that unfulfilling. And it was around while working for that company that this poet named Inq came and performed in some of those friends I met in Panama's living room. They, I really liked what he had to say. And I really remembered a lot of the lines. And on the way home, I started writing about why I liked it. And the first two lines of what I wrote rhymed. And so I was like, all right, I can do this. And I finished the poem. And performed it for him when I saw him the next day, actually. And he was like, wow, you should, you should really consider pursuing this. And it wasn't immediate by any means. I was still, you know, working other jobs, doing social consulting for probably the next 
two years or so, but only recently I've now, or I guess for the past, I guess it's been two, three years that I've been being a full-time poet, um, helping, you know, create the, oh, sorry. And the piece I missed of this was I turned one of my poems into a, into a short film. It went viral. And it was around then that I started realizing like, okay, I think I'm onto something unique here. And particularly in this sort of combination of poetry and film, understanding content and storytelling as I do. And so I have that kind of niche of video poetry storytelling, as well as the performances that I give. And, but yeah, so that's been, that's been life recently is being a full-time poet and filmmaker and turning these messages into ideas that can spread across the internet or trying to crystallize certain ideas. So they appear in people's heads. Yeah, that's, that's pretty cool, man. That's such a non, non-traditional path, but I feel like at the same time, do you feel like there was sort of like this commonality that that was leading you towards this the whole time, like this sort of part of you that was that was feeling called towards this? Like you, you mentioned putting ideas in people's heads. Was was that always something that, that you were drawn to? That piece of it was definitely what drew me, I think, to marketing was being able to to influence how people think. But I, I and it's interesting, to, you know, you, we make these meaning in these stories as we look back, right? But in the moment of it, I think it was really more about recognizing in the moment as I heard Inky, as I heard that poet, that like, wow, there's something here. And being able to act on that and explore that, that more led me to where I am today. Like, then it was like a driving force from the beginning of like, this is where I was, this is where I'm going. It felt like a hard turn, but it felt like a meaningful one. It was one of the most, like, writing that poetry felt like it was, and it sounds cheesy or spiritual, but it just, it, it didn't felt like from, like it was from a higher place. It felt like I was channeling and like, it's, it's an older version of me would be like, shut up. No, it wasn't channeling. Um, but it really, it felt like it wasn't me. I was just trying to catch a message and write it down. And that was the first time I'd ever experienced anything like that. And as soon as I had, it was something I knew I wanted to pursue. Very cool. And is, you know, it sounds like it sort of started as this passion for you and it's turned into a life purpose. So, you know, as, as somebody that's sort of gone from like the media background to the, you know, in, and marketing and worked with people like Gary Vee and moved into the space of poetry and, and art creation, how do you differentiate or sort of define the parameters between passion and, and purpose? I'm just curious. Yeah, it's, I have an interesting relationship with that, especially as a as it comes about like profession and, and making money, because in some ways I felt that when I had, when I was doing more other jobs and even today, I also do you know some speaking on what technology is doing to humanity, which supplements my, my poetry income. I found that it's easier to be more freely creative when all, everything is not riding on your creativity's income. And so for me, like the, it'll, I think, I think when money gets involved, it inherently complicates things. And we start to, it seeps into our brain. We naturally start to think like, oh, if I, this is where the money is. If I start to do my art this way or put my creativity in this direction, I might profit more. And that's great. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. And that's a beautiful thing for many people. But for me personally, I find that like, if we can do create for creation's sake and really be artists for this, for truly for the sake of art and separate that from money, it, I think it creates something really unique and beautiful in this world because there's so little of that. There's so there's so little of people truly just creating to create. And so having, I think, supplementary income, you know, there's a lot of this narrative of like, you find your passion, you got to do it, you make that 100% your thing. And that's like, that's great. Like, if that path works for you, go do that. But I don't think there's anything 
wrong with looking for money as a certain way of thinking, what activities and what um, what jobs can bring in income, and also maybe separately, what how do you want to apply yourself creatively, and are you are you freed up? Is it a better path for you to pursue that separately? Does that let you create things that you're more proud of? It's just worth thinking about. Yeah, I, I like that, and I appreciate your answer because I think one of the things you know that that I kind of experienced in the in the past when I'd gone through being a classical singer and singing opera, and then transitioning out of that into you know learning psychology and moving into the in the corporate space and working with Apple was this this sort of like shock from people that was like, how could you walk away from that? Like, how could you walk away from your passion? Like, isn't that what you should be doing with your life? And I kind of experienced the exact same thing where I started making money off of doing that. And it sort of took away some of the luster from it. Like I realized that that wasn't for me, at least personally, just for me, wasn't really what I saw myself doing. I didn't like the business side of the industry. And, and like didn't want to necessarily make a living off of doing that just because I felt like the for myself, the intense amount of pressure that it put on me to perform really started to take away what I loved about it. And <laughs> and I found that when yeah. I started to remove that pressure, I really started to love it again. And so it was like this really weird back and forth balance for me. And I'm, I'm curious if, if you've come across that yourself and, and how you manage that or, or, or at least what you would say to people who might be experiencing that, who have sort of found their passion and, you know, they've bought in this idea that that's, that's the path that they should go down. They should, you know, make, make money off of that. Uh, how do they navigate those waters so they can still be passionate about it, still have that zest for it without it losing its spark when you start to make money? Yeah, I think that's, I think that's really hard. I definitely noticed it. In myself. And as soon as I started making money from poetry, and this is partially, I think, something about being a man or being you know, like, is this natural competitive, like, okay, now I'm doing this, like, how do I rock it? What are the paths that I should take? And I think, you know, some of this is, is just me, and others are probably less so seriously affected by that. But I immediately started to notice that style of thinking seep into my brain and changing the way that I looked at it, um, changing the way that I enjoyed it. All of a sudden, it used to be that like, oh, wow, like I, inspiration is here. It's coming. I'm so excited. I get to write. I get to play with this. And then all of a sudden it was like, okay, why isn't it coming more? Why isn't it coming yet? How do I get more of this? It became stressful instead of becoming free and playful and fun. And I think so much of great creativity comes when it is free and playful and fun. How do you navigate that is a great question. Um, <laughs> it's a challenging one to give, to give an answer to. I think you kind of need to figure it out for yourself. But I guess good questions to ask yourself are like, am I enjoying this the way that I used to and for the reasons that I got into it? Are there steps that I can take that would make it more like how it was? Can I shift my attitude about it to make it more about the reasons that I enjoyed it? Um, and then also I think, yeah, do I like, am I making this my career because it's the thing that I love and I can make money doing this and enjoy that process? Or am I making this my career because I feel like I'm supposed to do this because this is the thing that I that I want to be doing. But actually, I could be making money other ways and actually enjoying my passion more. Mm. Um, and I think just being okay with that with that path. And there's a thin line too between like doing that out of fear and doing that because it's a smart choice. Like I think there is some like natural artist's fear of well, I'm putting myself out there, and what if they don't like me? Is that no market demand? So I'm not, you know, I'm not good enough to be doing that. And I think that was actually the poem I shared <laughs> I shared with you at. At Amber's, that fear of not being enough, is this poetry worth worth enough, worth anything? Are words valuable? And 
there's something to be said for trying to conquer that fear. But I, I also think there's something to be said for understanding why you're doing what you're doing and making sure you don't lose that spark. Mm, I like that. Um, I, I kind of want to just pause there and, and, you know, you, you pose an interesting question is, are words valuable? And I feel like I know what my immediate answer is, but I'm curious as to, I'm, I'm curious as to what your perspective is having gone through this iteration of being in digital media marketing and, and advertising and now moving into the space of poetry. So, um, so, so what are your thoughts on that? <laughs> I mean, I'm my harshest critic for sure. Uh, and I think on a deep level, I, I want words to be valuable. And when I'm feeling in sort of more meditative states, I feel they are valuable. And then when I come into looking at the world around me from, from more societal point of view and thinking from my shrewd libertarian father's perspectives um, of like, what is the value being brought here? I doubt it. I doubt the value of words, which is really complicated for me. Emotionally, I think that it is valuable to change people's opinions and help people shift consciousness with words. But there's also a different kind of value that comes from from more tangibly and immediately helping people. And from I'm even in my own mind right now. I'm arguing with myself. (laughs) (laughs) I've created I've created a battle. (laughs) You've created a battle, which is good. A lot of art comes out of that battle. I guess my answer is my answer is yes and no. My answer is is yes. Words are valuable, but they're also we shouldn't stop at words. Um, mm. Words can lead us to actions and experiences, and it's important to carry out those words into actions and experiences. Words alone are are valuable are a valuable place to start. There we go. You can cut the rest of it. <laughs> I like that. I like that. Uh, I always I always thought of words as as access points. You know, they're sort of like these doors into other worlds. You know, other worlds of experience, of emotions, of of just like it, uh, this, this whole deeper part of the human experience in in many ways access points to understanding and and wisdom, and so I you know I, I love I love your answer because you you can curate the words in such a way to tell a story. So I'm a little bit curious as to how how you can go about or how our listeners could go about creating better stories because it seems like storytelling is such an important part of the world that we live in now. You know, like it seems like everybody and their dog, especially their dog, has, <laughs> you know, has public profiles, social media profiles. And and that regardless of the industry that you're in, people are now being expected to become storytellers, whether they're like your uh, CFA who's like filing your taxes, or they're like the person that runs the coffee shop down the street, or they're a marketing specialist. So why why is storytelling becoming more and more prevalent within our culture and our society? And what do people need to know in order to really leverage the power of storytelling? Right. So, I mean, I feel like social media is the clear the clear answer there is that all of a sudden we're constantly branding ourselves digitally and having to tell our own stories and position what we're doing in our own lives and tell that story of us. But in terms of how to tell a good story, I'm more interested in that question for the context of this conversation. Mm-hmm. And I think the two answers come to mind. One is that a message is only as good as its ability to be received. A Simon Sinek tidbit that I really like is that some of the most academically celebrated papers on earth are read by on average eight people and seven of whom to see if they are cited. <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, this, this, this question of like, if all of your brilliance can't reach other people's minds, is what is it worth? What is the point of all of that brilliance? 
Um, and so I think really having empathy and being able to put yourself in the head of the person who you're talking to is of the utmost importance. And then I'm starting to find within my own work too, that there are two categories of, of for me, poetry, but of like type of story. And one of which is one that is really specially crafted and for the audience. And it's really trying to help paint a picture of how you guys can see the world differently. I'm trying to make, I'm trying to make a point and guide you there. And the other is sort of first story or sorry, first person story where I'm sharing a struggle or something I'm going through myself. And I find that those stories are more powerful just from raw honesty. And what people get out of those is this feeling of not aloneness of, I see that me too. Um, I can, I can relate to that. And that's, that has its own kind of value, which is, which is different, I think, than guiding an audience towards a new way of seeing the world or a new perspective. And I think those are different categories of story and both have their value. Mm. Yeah. And, and in terms of like guiding people on the path to understanding something new or, or uh, having a new perspective of viewing the world is seeing the world. Are there, are there some integral parts that, that we need to know in order to communicate that? Because I feel like, you know, I, I hear that, I hear you say that. And I'm like, yes, absolutely. I feel like I've done that in talks before, but then I'm like, how have I actually done that? And, and what actually creates that shift in people's consciousness where they do start to see things in a new way? So are there some, some, parts of that journey that you can share with us that are from your perspective integral to to conveying that message yeah um, it's, it's a good question breaking down what gets people there i think one like and this i don't want to say this like a tactic like i'm crafting manipulating a right. story to try and make it work in your head because it's really not that's not <laughs> how it works but but i think one thing that really helps is to is to sort of be your own skeptic and like to so when you you know I'm a person, I'm on a stage or wherever I am telling a story, I'm trying to convince you of this sort of important point or this argument. And naturally, in our heads, we all have sort of doubts. And I think when you hear the storyteller, him or herself, address those doubts and say like, so like, you know, and you're probably thinking, this is why this is wrong. And like, yeah, that's a good point. And here's why I disagree with it. Um, I think creates a sort of self-awareness in storytelling that can be quite helpful. And then in changing people's perspective, uh, you know, humor is always a really valuable tool that helps people break outside of our preconceived notions and beliefs. But it's, I, I don't think I have the answers for what exactly the formula is, but those are a couple of things that are helpful for me. No, that's, that's perfect. And I'm, I'm, I don't think we need the, the secret, the secret sauce or the secret formula, but those, those, <laughs> those, those parts are definitely, uh, definitely important. It's, it's interesting. I had a guy on the show who is a professor at the Institute of Humor in America. And like, so it's, it's like the, it's, it's a, an institute dedicated to understanding what's funny and what makes things funny. And he basically like broke down the structure of what makes good jokes and like the different types of jokes. And I was so fascinated by it because he like gave some very specific examples. And one of them was that you take a mundane uh, or sort of like commonly known thing and then make a very obscure uh, comment about it or, or make a comment about it that is sort of offensive <laughs> and you, <laughs> you put like an offensive spin on it and it can create this like state change within our brains where we'll start to see it a little bit differently where it gets painted in a, in a different picture visually in our minds. Um, so I just, it just reminded me that I just called that back for me, but wow, I want to check that out. Yeah, it was, it was pretty interesting. Um, so one of the other things that I was really curious about, and, and I know this is sort of like a, uh, 
um, divergence from the storytelling, but maybe, maybe not too far off, is is that you're also one of the leaders of something called the Center for Humane Technology. And I would love for you to just unpack a little bit about that because it seems like kind of a kind of an interesting step going from you know a social media expert or a digital media strategist in, in order to get to that place of being uh, a part of the Center for Human Technology. So what brought you there and, and what does it stand for? Yeah. Um, and you asked about passion and purpose. This stuff, like both, I think I'm more passionate about the poetry. Poetry does feel aligned with my purpose, but this shaping how tech influences our future and the future of humanity feels very aligned to my purpose as well in sort of a, a different but supportive way. Um, and so it was essentially in trying to steal people's time, which is what I was doing at the startup I was working at. And I never thought I was doing anything wrong. I thought not making anyone do anything they don't want to do. But that was the job. We needed more of your time this year than we get last year to keep shareholders happy. We were told that if we could hold your attention for two minutes or longer, we had a valuable company. And it was around that time that I realized that Facebook, Google, Netflix, Snapchat, all of the biggest companies that rule our digital world, um, there are thousands of engineers who are doing the same thing we were doing and who were way better at it than we were. And as I started to look at my own behavior and realizing this difference between what we want the moments that we like look back on and cherish versus just what we will do if you put a certain set of stimuli in front of us um, and realizing the difference there and then sort of watching our world change so subtly and then not so subtly based on this larger social experiment in human history and thinking like, wow, this is a major responsibility we have as we shape technology and shape the future. It's like, where are we going? What is the purpose of this tech? How is this enhancing our lives? Or is, are we using technology or is technology using us? And so the Center for Humane Technology is about realigning uh, technology with humanity's best interests. Um, and it's been, it's been a lot of progress recently, actually. And Apple and Google are starting to implement some of Tristan, uh, really the leader of this movement's ideas from like about five years ago. So it takes a lot of time. But um, we're also seeing this shift in public attitude about is all this social media stuff so good for so good for us? Are we seeing we're seeing some of the dark sides start to surface? And I think that's just the beginning. We're, there's a lot there's a lot left to uncover. Um, but ultimately, we're, this really is a critical point for us because we're designing artificial intelligence and technology that is going to the way we set the parameters now are going to influence the next hundreds or thousands of years. And so, if we're not really careful about what we're designing for and how we create these systems, we're going to lose the things that we love about what makes us human. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like something out there from a sci-fi movie, but we're, we're here. We're actually really here now. And it's a critical point for us. And so it, it feels like a very important cause. And it's a way that I, I volunteer my time. Nice. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting, right? Because over the last couple of years, I think we've, we've all seen, you know, executives from Facebook and, and these different social media platforms start to speak out against or uh, against or sort of saying like, this is the very real impact of social media and, and, and whether they intended that to happen or not, we're starting to see the, the sort of addiction and the consequences of some of those things. And so. How, what, what have you guys sort of defined or, or what is what is the Center for Humane Technology started to find in terms of the research around how we can start to unplug? I know a lot of people, um, yourself included, do like the, the black and white screen. Uh, so they like remove the colors. Uh, what are some of the things that people can start to do to sort of unplug a little bit more and reconnect back into real life? 
Sure. And so we call these band-aids um, because ultimately we really need systemic change and change in the design of how these platforms are governed. But there are things, you know, we're suffering now and there are things we can do that'll help us have healthy, healthier relationships with our devices. Um, one of those is turning off all notifications that are not from a person who's trying to reach you. So let the only time your phone can buzz be when a human being is trying to reach you. So no, this person has liked your photo. Happy holidays from Tinder. You haven't played Candy Crush in a while. Turning off all of those notifications so that the only time your phone can buzz is when a real human being is trying to reach you because those other notifications are algorithmically generated, usually looking at you as subject 72684B. How can I send you the perfect notification at this right time that is most likely to get you to spend more time in my app? Um, so that's one. And then another that people have found incredibly helpful is a physical alarm clock. So most of us, or a lot of us, have our phones as our alarms. And so the very first thing we see in the morning is all the ways in which we're behind, right? We hit off or we hit snooze, and then we just have everything right there in front of us. And we're groggy, we're half conscious, and the first things we put in our brain are not our own thoughts. Um, a physical alarm clock is $8 on Amazon, and it allows you to really just wake up and not have this immediate stressor that comes into our lives. And people have found that to be, to be incredibly helpful. Um, for, I don't know how, what the average age of the person listening to this is, but for younger people, I always recommend that for at least a month, you try deleting social media from your phone. We should like just to know what that experience is like. Uh, what is it like to live without social media on our phones? It's easier to do this with groups of friends rather than individually to not feel left out. Um, but do you want to live your whole life without knowing what that is to not be connected to social media? And it's a lot of people report feeling less sort of anxiety or less stressed. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, I love that. And we'll, we'll put some of the uh, links in the show notes for this so people can check out some of the, you know, the tools, the tips, if you're wanting to, quote unquote, take control of your phone, uh, which which is on uh, the the Center for Humane Technology. Great. So we, we, we'll put that all in there, the grayscale, all, all these different tips. So I think that's fantastic. So I appreciate that, man. Well, let's let's switch gears a little bit. I know this is like a right turn into the conversation of masculinity, but <laughs> I feel like, yeah. I feel like it just doesn't really need much of a segue. So let's, let's just, let's just go into that. Cause it sounds like you've had quite a, a, an incredible journey, you know, through your career, through your art, through your passions that have led you into a sort of not questioning, but a, a seeking to, to better understand your own sense of masculinity. So maybe just for the, for the listener's sake, unpack some of that journey for us. Uh, sure. I, uh, I also feel like what's relevant here for me is that like, I was very small growing up. I was like, I was very short as a child. I was probably like four foot 11 for most of high school. Um, and in some ways I actually think the way I got clever with words was as a way of trying to be bigger, being able to be more, cutting with my words that would allow me to make up for my physical smallness and being afraid of being beat up. And if people were afraid that I would verbally insult them, they'd be less likely to beat me up. But I, uh, I think like every, you know, a lot of our definitions of masculinity do start from childhood. And that was, that was a peace of mind, but I've always, I've always been closer with women than I have with men. I've always had just like a deep love and appreciation for, for the feminine and often was really troubled by what appeared to be what I was supposed to be as a man, um, particularly growing up and looking at that image from media. I 
what I saw when I was curious about what sex was and learned way too much of that from porn, like this contrast between what I was watching there and the sort of appreciation for women was very challenging for me to reconcile for most of my, for most of my high school and and college years. Uh, And it's been actually recently, anyway, it's been the past probably five years that I've been able to have what I think is a healthier relationship with this, but I'm always trying to learn and figure out how I can be a better man um, and what it means to be a man in 2018. Uh, And one thing that, that I have found in myself through a lot of work recently, actually about values is that one thing that I value is emotional courage. Um, And I think that's a trait of masculinity that I hope we can start to see become more directly tied to the definition of what a man is. Because I think we used to have this idea of it's, defend your woman from the tiger. And of course, that's still an element of what exists. But it can be so challenging to be truly vulnerable, to truly express my needs, to truly let myself reach an emotional place where I could be hurt. And that kind of emotional courage is something that I value when I show up with it. And I also struggle to show up with on a daily basis. Um, and so the w- way in which I'm trying to grow as a man is to more embody that emotional courage. Nice. Yeah, I, I like that. And, you know, I think it's it really is part of the journey that I think that every man has to go to go through is to, is to start to understand what that emotional courage looks like and how to embody it and how to heal the relationship with with the masculine. You know, like I think so many guys, as I've worked with men all over the world now, it really is similar stories for so many guys, whether they feel like they were abandoned or they were abused by a man or, um, you know, they just, they it just is easier and, and healthier relationships with the feminine. So the masculine sort of seems like this odd, strange and foreign concept or, or they're, you know, they, they understand like the old school archaic versions of what it meant to be a man. And they're trying to find their own way in the world. Uh, so it, it really is like this, this interesting journey, but, but I, the one commonality that I've seen is that in order to sort of heal their relationship with the masculine, that they, they need to start to embody this sense of emotional courage. So how has that shown up for you? Like, what are the, what are the important components or or parts of starting to embody this deeper sense of emotional courage and and what does it require? And so before I go on, just because what you said really made me think, and I don't feel I was particularly articulate before was also that just yet like growing up really, I think feeling a, an appreciation for women, for the feminine, Mm -hmm. and then sort of associating masculinity with this more macho idea. And this, this idea that was really planted in me from porn was really deeply confusing. It was a deeply, it was like, Oh, this, this being a man thing is about this, like, you know, taking over dominating rough fucking like mistreating women, um, treating women like objects um, and the confusion around the very real parts in us that that activates, um, because it's not, you know, there's some elements in there that really are inherent in us. I just, I, I found that deeply troubling and I think confused, confused a lot of how I showed up or tried to show up as a man for a lot of my teen and mid twenties years. And I just do want to articulate that, uh, cause it's something I had, I've really had to unlearn. Mm-hmm. And that was, that's been a big challenge in my, in my growth as a man. Um, and then in terms of, it's been a more newer wave of this emotional courage aspect of things in the past couple of years. And really one thing that's been incredibly helpful for me in that regard is, is these men's groups. Um, Every Man is an organization that 
helps to facilitate some of these men's groups. It's this incredible process that really helps us tap into what I would call feminine intelligence um, within men. We often are thinking, all right, what do I do next? How do I fix this? What's the solution to this problem? How do I go about this? That's how we look at our lives a lot of the times. And what this group is really about is just very honestly checking in with what are you feeling? You ask each other questions, not like, well, why? And what do we do about that? But okay, where's that feeling in your body? What's underneath that feeling? If that feeling could talk, what would that feeling say? And it's just a different way of showing up that really has helped me better understand what it is that I am going through, what it is that I am experiencing. And the first step to emotional courage I'm finding is understanding what the heck our emotions are saying and being able to have an idea of how we're really feeling. And so just even accessing that as a man, I think can be challenging. But so, you know, step one, identifying and understanding what's uncomfortable and what's underneath that discomfort, and then being able to express that to our partners or to our friends or to the people in our lives in a way that they can understand and that they can support. Because usually I'm also finding that um, as scary as it is, and sometimes there are real consequences and sometimes it doesn't go the way that you might want it to. But the thing about for me, emotional courage is that when I, when I show up and when I feel I have said what I needed to say and been emotionally courageous, I don't feel regret for that. I feel that regardless of the outcome, I'm happy that I was. But it's, I think, especially as a man, it's a really complicated process because it involves a deep knowledge of what we are truly feeling, where that's coming from. And then communicating it is a whole other beast because words are only somewhat valuable. Right, right. I, I like that. That was such a good answer, <laughs> especially especially at the end. Um, no, it's 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 so true. It's so true, and and you know, it's it's interesting because every man um, is is doing very similar work to to what we do within the within man talks within the alliance, and it's really about understanding the the sort of emotionality of what's what's going on underneath the surface, and being able to integrate those parts rather than. Uh, disassociate from them or, or cut them off or try and numb them out or see them as, you know, I think a lot of the, a lot of guys that, that I've seen and, and, and even from my own personal perspective, I used to see it as irrelevant data. You know, it was like, well, here's my feelings, here are my emotions. And this doesn't seem like it's relevant in, in the success of my life because in order to be a successful man, I need to trust and abide by rational thinking above all else. And that that actually created more problems in my life than than I can than I can even count. And it wasn't until I started to really cultivate a deep sense of emotional intelligence and, and understanding around my own emotionality and where it came from and what was going on that I really started to shift all areas of my life. Like not not just from a success standpoint, but from a fulfillment, a happiness, an intimacy standpoint. And uh, coupled with that was actually my relationship with pornography. And, you know, recently uh, in the Man Talks community, we've got like 3,500 guys in there. We did a challenge for the guys, a 30-day no porn challenge, because it seemed like, a, you know, quite a few of the guys were having challenges with letting go of pornography. And and while most people know that that porn is, you know, can, can have a pretty negative impact on their life, on their relationship, on their, on their intimacy, on their sex life, um, letting it go can be a huge issue. And so we did this challenge. And it's been incredible to see some of the journeys, some of the some of the feedback 
and the transformation that some of these guys have gone through. So I'm curious if, if you know, porn has played a role in your life and how that sort of showed up for you in your journey. Yeah. I mean, porn was like, I was probably 12 um, when I first started watching porn and, you know, hormones are starting to change and I'm seeing everybody around me and everything on TV being about this sex thing. Oh, what is, what is the sex thing that everybody's talking about? That is clearly the end all and be all of life according to the world around me. And, uh, well, I learned about sex through a variety of porn sites. That's the way 12 year old Max learned what girls like. Let's not let my, without being able to see me lose the lack of air quotes there. I typed in each variation of boobs.com. I could think of a problem later solved through the invention of Pornhub. A friend recommends with a big fat grin, thinks of more as thinks he's more of a man because of where he's been. Remember this is pre Google and Jeeves had kids. So that night I ran home to fire up my dial up. <laughs> You've got mail. Mm -hmm. I don't care. My adolescent boners tucked into the waistband of my underwear and there are limitless women and their pussies are swimming at the thought of having penises shoved recklessly in them. I'm like www.pornhub.com. And suddenly I'm seeing everything that's trending. Gang bangs, cum shots, rear ending, never ending. The breadth of my selection as intense as my erection. Holy shit, give me a second to turn off parental detection. It's hilarious they tried to put it up there in the first place. First base, second base, third base, fourth base, fifth base, sixth base, seventh base, eighth base. Women seem to love being treated like objects, though this is something to which we'd rationally object with even the slightest mix of common sense and innocence. But when 12-year-old eyes watch enough face-fucking belligerence, it starts to permeate into our sexual subconscious. Mixing my primal desires to pounce on these linuses as they part the lips of their blushing vaginas with genuine young curiosity. Of what all this means. All these men I've seen in movies on TV obsessed with the very same thing. And according to porn, that's... Women on their knees begging for our seed. It's using the female body for our whims, desires, and needs. Tricked into nudity so easily before being discarded so casually. It seems men are meant to dominate this lesser species. That's what porn taught me being a manly man means. That's what porn taught me being good in bed means. Porn planted that deeply misguided lie in me. And maybe pornography can help us live out fantasies and explore our spectrum of sexuality. But personally, it was far more education than it should have been. And for that, I take responsibility. But think about how easy it was for me to pop up in my laptop screen and watch these societally picture-perfect women moan and scream as they look back at me. And for all practical purposes, it was me since I was into POV. That's where the camera sees what I would see. And God knows I was getting no real pussy at age 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. So do to what was strictly availability, porn became my sexual reality. And unfortunately, I don't think my story's an anomaly. I didn't learn that physical intimacy was a possibility until my mid-twenties. Making love was just fucking stripped of its masculinity. I was using women as vessels for masturbating, most of whom were so used to being treated without dignity they wouldn't bother telling me. To avoid bruising my ego, they'd just endure my incompetency. And anyone rolling their eyes, as I probably would have been, I ask you to explore the possibility that the sex we learn from porn or American society is actually, when applied to reality, usually just really bad sex. Can it be fun to smack some ass and unleash your dominance? Hell yes. But we were taught sex that expresses a measly portion of what it can express. More or less the junk food of male consciousness. 
After giving up porn, I got to watch the woman I love dance so freely on me that it may be the first time I ever truly understood femininity. Sexuality is fun, but there is jaw-dropping, soul-wrenching beauty when it is mixed with creativity, intimacy, and vulnerability. If you had told me in college how hot breathing with our clothes on could be, I would have laughed you off heartily. But fortunately, I met a woman stronger than I would have been if I were she to slow me down and feel the heat of our breath. Move up and down and in and out through our chests. Show me how beautiful it can be when love and sex aren't two separate things. That I'd been trying to do life's greatest puzzle with just one piece. The difference between ecstasy and crotch sneeze. I'd been doing crotch sneeze. How far pornography had taken me from where I want to be. And actually, it's sort of unfinished. I'm almost struggling with endings. <laughs> got an ending here that i don't really love but yeah but we'll stop there you guys get a you get a new poem there that i'm figuring out how to workshop <laughs> <laughs> i love it man i love it we'll have to we'll have to like once it's once it's complete once you've got the the ending that that you want we'll have to like set you up in person and get you to get you to do it live because i think that's amazing it's a it's a I think that's that gives some really great, great insight into the challenges that I've seen so many men go through with pornography and the sort of like desensitization. And I mean, man, you, you touch on so many pieces there. I feel like we should have started with that and just unpacked the whole thing. <laughs> we just did a, we should do a whole episode on pornography. We'll just like unpack the whole the whole poem because there's some there's some pretty incredible stuff in there. Um Maybe a maybe yeah. a good idea. <laughs> yeah, man. I mean, look, I, I know that we don't have a ton of time left, but one of the things that I did want to extract from that is your personal journey in, in going through this. You know, it sounds like the the connection, the intimacy, the the ecstasy, the the real connection with a partner has come from something very different than what you've seen in porn. And and I would just love for you to, to sort of highlight that for the listeners because I know it was, it was pretty clear in the in the poem, but I would love to hear, you know, what that process was like for you. Yeah, it was it was so surprising. It was I had this I had this beautiful experience with a um just with like a friend who I who I really cared for. Who just like really you know, and she's a magical creature. Um, but she really was able to slow me down and just like help me see intimacy differently. Um, I like what had this sort of, had had this reflex of like, okay, as soon as we enter into this sort of like sex category, we're in this thing that I had kind of associated with porn. Like, okay, now we're, now we're doing this thing. But I think what she did was she was able to help me stay connected to those, I guess a lot of us, the feelings to those feelings of care and intimacy and love for her. Um, and to be able to have that be the guiding force through physical intimacy. Um, and it's just, it's a different, you know, it's, it's a different kind of pleasure. It's a different kind of connection. It's a different kind of experience. Um, and it's, and I, I don't want to pretend to be the expert here at all. Um, this is something I'm learning on a daily basis as well. But there's the, just a, um, I guess I would like, I'm trying to like to, in terms of storytelling, say this to the person who, who was where I, where I was. And you know, it's not about better or worse, just we're at different places in our journey. Um, but I just, I was shocked. I was shocked at how different and how much more 
and how much better and how much more fulfilling it was to be able to keep that kind of emotional connection and play with that sort of like fun and creativity and, and the beauty and, um, and when love is a part of that. Uh, and I, I don't actually think I'm doing a particularly good job explaining, but (laughs) it is, it is, it is hard to explain. And, and I understand, I think that guys that have gone through that journey of, of, uncoupling from pornography and and really like leaning into intimacy within the relationship understand what you're saying and so uh you know i like that you say it's not better or worse it's it's not about good or bad it's just you know simply about a different a different path that you can start to walk if you so choose and you know i think that there's some some great resources out there whether you join a men's group like man talks or every man or uh you know you start reading literature like way of the superior man or some some of the other books that are out there that that can start to walk you down this path. But I do think that the biggest thing is starting to let go of, of porn and, and realizing the impact that it has in our lives and the control that it can have over, you know, our, our brains and our bodies. There's some great research out there from Harvard. Uh, they did, they did this study to kind of like show the impact on it, which I won't dive into here because I already did that on, on one of the videos that I did about porn. So. Yeah, listen, man, this this has been great. I know we we sort of like covered the gamut and ended up in a very uh in a, in a really great place. So, you know, in in terms of if there's people that are out there listening that that are in the space that you're in whether they're struggling in the relationship or with their relationship to pornography or just their masculinity and, and purpose, what what do you want to leave them with? What insight or quote unquote advice do you want to leave them with? Um, yeah, I do believe that a hiatus from porn, like for however long is remote, can do remarkable things in this regard. And also like, I think the most succinct way I can put it too, and this is what I say when I talk at schools and stuff is just that for my young adult life, porn made me really bad at sex. Like that's, that was the truth. Um, I had to unlearn and figure out all sorts of, you know, new ways of looking at sex and intimacy and relationships and, like, I think the shortest and most succinct way of looking at it is that. And so, like, I just, I feel like that's the most clear and direct way of approaching the, uh, the issue. And it doesn't have to, doesn't have to be that way. But there's also, there's like this, it also creates this kind of, this pressure and this feeling of how we're supposed to be doing things. And I think also challenging concepts of masculinity, which, um, it's far more satisfying to separate from. And then if you'd like, incorporate back in and, and see what parts of that really resonate for you and, and what you want to explore. And, um, but to not, as for those of us who are maybe are of my generation where education and where sex education and porn were too closely tied, I think taking a step back for a while and, and being open, especially to strong women who are willing to teach is, is a really, really fulfilling, meaningful, powerful path to take. Awesome. Awesome. I love that. I love that. Well, listen, Max, thank you so much for joining me on the Man Talk Show. Thanks for having me. Awesome, brother. And for everybody that's out there listening, uh, definitely check out the show notes. You can check out Max's site. You can check out some of his work. We're going to have links for those uh, along with the Center for Humane Technology. Uh, the links will all be in the show notes. Don't forget to subscribe to the to the podcast, whether you are checking this out on YouTube or Spotify or on Apple Music. Uh, leave a review and uh, subscribe. And and the last thing is just man it forward. Just share this podcast with one person. Uh, we don't do any marketing outside of just asking you to share with one person. So if you enjoyed this, 
Uh, if you enjoyed this podcast episode, share it with one person. So thanks very much for joining us. Join me next week for another inspiring conversation with another inspiring individual. Mm-hmm.